Well, you can clap for that, and then you can volunteer, and that would be wor- that would really work real well. So, anyway, I have to be on my best behavior today because we've got guest preachers among us, and they're probably going to criticize and critique—not criticize. I'm sorry, not criticize, critique my work. It's really good to have you guys here, and uh, just to see you again, and. Uh, Thanks for coming. If you take your Bibles and turn to 2 Kings chapter 22, we're going to look at two chapters. Um, we're going to, the, I've entitled the sermon this morning, I Have Found the Book. I have no slides or anything like that because we will be celebrating the Lord's Supper and you're going to see how this all works together as we get to the end of this passage. Peter already mentioned that every year, and I think, oh yes, I got carried away. First through uh, kindergarten through third grade are dismissed for junior church. Kindergarten through third, junior church. Okay, now I finally got everything under control. We will be celebrating the Lord's Supper as the end of this uh, chapter that we're going to be looking at. Uh, comes to an end, we will see that they celebrated the Passover, and uh, that is a a really great lead-in unto us celebrating the Lord's Supper. I've entitled the sermon this morning, I Have Found the Book. It is a statement made in the passage we're going to look at, because the Word of God had been neglected for many, many years in the nation of Israel. And uh, they had rediscovered a copy of the law. And uh, we're going to see how that changed everything in their lives. Of course, our challenge to you is that the Word of God would change and challenge and encourage you in the year to come. Peter and I, we, we get just downright appalled and disgusted at a lot of the things that we see going on around us, um, not necessarily Garden Chapel or anything like that, but just in general, how the Word of God and the truth of God is neglected in all areas. I believe there's three areas in my introduction I'd like to just kind of give a, a shout out to, and that is, first of all, we all need to know what the Bible says, not to win an argument. Not to win a Bible trivia quiz. uh, None of those kinds of things. Or so that I can be a know-it-all. But that we can know what the truth is, apply it to our lives, so that our lives would be changed and be glorifying to God. I'll mention this again, but the Bible is very clear in the passage that we're going to be looking at. Is obedience brings blessing and disobedience brings a curse. And so if you don't know what's going on, you, you won't know where you stand. Ignorance of the law is no excuse. That's true in Pennsylvania, that's true in the United States, and that's true of God's Word. You do not want to be ignorant of what God has designed for you to live in. And so I encourage you to be in the Word of God. As we already said, in your bulletins uh, is a sheet that will get you through the Bible in three years. Some of you are reading through the Bible in one year. Praise the Lord. I, many years ago, 
uh, used to challenge people to read the whole Bible through every year, and I found out by February most people had fallen off, so I divided it up, and I've been challenging for three years since that. But if you want to do more than that, feel free. You want to do it some other way, you have a way you go through the Bible on a regular basis, please use it. I don't really care what the exact method is or how you do it, just be in the Word on a regular basis. We need to do that. We need to remind her. I've mentioned um, my wife. I've been, I've been carrying out the garbage for about 45 years now. That's how long I'm married. And you want to know something? I have a wife who reminds me about every other week. Did you take the recycling out? You know, I know what I need to do, except that, I still need reminded. I know a lot of what the Bible says, but I need reminded. This sermon alone is the product of me reading through the Bible. About a month and a half ago, I came to to 2 Kings chapter 22, and as I read it, I'm like, whoa, that's my sermon for a month and a half, two months from now. I, I already, God just used that to get my attention. Because what it says there is just so important. So the first thing is we need to know the Bible so we can apply it. The second thing is we need to know the Bible so we can discern false teaching. As I already mentioned, Peter and I have fits and we talk about this all the time. And, and whenever something comes up and we're that doesn't sound right. Neither one of us can study for what we really need to do until we go and dig in. And we literally do this. Go and dig in separately and figure out what's going on and then we get back together and it's like yep that was wrong this is what the bible says they took it out of context and all kinds of other things one of the things that's happened in the past few years and this is just an example it's not not a a bottom line but an example is that people are now teaching they're writing books they're they're famous people on the radio and tv on the internet uh teaching that, you know what, the Bible says the old heaven and earth are burned up and God is going to have a new heaven and a new earth and now they're teaching the same same type of doctrine the Jehovah's Witnesses have been teaching for years is that it's not a new heaven and a new earth, it's just a renovated one, it's just a restored or renewed heaven and earth. So what the Bible teaches. And the reason I'm using that one as an example this morning is because most people look at the book of Revelation or they look at 2 Peter, where 2 Peter says it's all going to be burned up and there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And Revelation chapter uh, 21 says the same thing. And that's the New Testament. And they're like... And they have to avoid what the words actually mean. But they're like, oh, it doesn't really mean a, a new one. It's just something... You know, reworked. Well, that's not what the the words say. In fact, is in Revelation 21, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and earth passed away. When you look at three of those words, none of them allow for something to be simply renewed. They literally mean like first, for example, and I'm I'm not going to spend a lot of time. First means first as in not the second or first as in not the last. It's one in an order. So there was a first heaven and earth, and there's going to be a second heaven and earth. Not, a, not the same one reworked. But here's the deal. 
If you're going through the Bible in three years, this year you're going to get to Isaiah chapter 65. And Isaiah chapter 65, which gives us the basis for what Peter and and John wrote in the book of Revelation, it says in that passage in Isaiah 65 that God is going to create a new heaven. And he's going to create a new earth. Don't say rework it. How do I know that? What I'm getting at is this, and I'm horrible at this. I get stuck on a phrase, a passage of Scripture, and I could spend two weeks in my devotions looking at that, trying to figure it out. I need to force myself to just keep reading so that I get the big context. Well, if you only ever read the New Testament, you wouldn't know that Isaiah 65 is speaking directly to that and saying, using the exact same word as in Genesis chapter 1, create, that he's creating a new heaven and earth. My challenge is this, get the big picture. So that when you see something in scripture, you know where it fits. Occasionally, I don't do this very often, but on vacation, we'll have a thousand-piece puzzle. I look at what the box, the picture on the box is, and I can start putting the puzzle together because i got an idea that blue doesn't belong on the bottom of the picture. It belongs on the top of the landscape. That's what I'm hoping you will do as you are in the Word of God on a regular basis every day. If you're not in the Word of God, you're not, you're not going to know what God wants you to do and what He expects of you and what He has done for you already like we've been singing here. And then the last one, and this one here, I only added to my sermon at the end of this week, because we are told by those in governmental authority, you cannot use the Bible, you can't have religion in the public square, you've got to X all of these things out. But now, and by, by the way, I'm not making a political statement, I'm just telling you what's happening, and you can go check it out for yourselves. But in the past two weeks, there are at least three or four prominent political figures who are now misquoting the Bible for their purposes. Most of it all had to do with the wall and border security and all that kind of stuff. The first one was somebody well-known said, well, this, this can't be because we're all children of God. Uh, unfortunately, that lady did not read what the Bible says. We are children of God by faith in Jesus Christ, and he's created us all, but we're not all just simply children of God. Misquoting the whole idea of the Bible. And then the second one is somebody for about six minutes. I never even heard of the guy before, but he's a representative. He went on for six minutes on a rant. And in that rant, he said, um, At this time when we celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ, who had to flee for his life with Mary and Joseph, thank God there wasn't a wall that stopped him from seeking refuge in Egypt. And it goes on, uh, and thank God there wasn't an administration like this, or, or he would have perished. And then on the 28th, three days after we saw, by the way, Jesus was not born on December 25th, but that's not the point. Three days later, you know, when Herod ordered the, the, the children all killed, under two years old. And then he ended with, 
Maybe I haven't gone a lot to Bible school, but, but I know that part, thank God. This guy needs to read a history book, and he needs to read the history book. If you heard two weeks ago, we looked at just Luke chapter 2. Guess what? Rome controlled everything. There was no need for a wall. He just simply doesn't know what he's talking about. Because Rome controlled Israel as well as Egypt. There was no problem there. And then, acting like Herod knew three days later, the wise men, I don't know how long it took the Magi, I don't know how long it took them to get there, but it was a while. They weren't there three days later or two days later. I mean, when you start telling us we cannot have an influence in the public square, and you turn around and you misquote the Bible, I want you to know, because these are heartstring issues, right? It's like, oh, oh, maybe, oh, what if that happened? It's just not in context at all. And I want you to be someone who can listen to the news, listen to your friends, listen to do whatever, and that you can put things in proper perspective. And then the last one I found, another political figure. Here's to a holiday filled with happiness, family, and love for all people, all, for all people, including refugee babies and mangers and their parents. And I'm like, Lady, get your act together and start looking. The refugee thing didn't even start at Christmas time. It was way later. In other words, know what the Bible says. And the only way you're going to know that is not by listening to me for a half an hour on Sunday morning or even going to a Sunday school or just a Bible study once a week. You need to be in the Word of God for yourself and know exactly what God says. Can I get an amen? Okay. Now, all of you that said amen, are you going to be in the Bible? That's a real problem. Okay, so anyway, let's look at the passage. I'm going to do this rather quickly, but we're in 2 Kings chapter 22. And that was just a a lead into this, because there was a king. The, The nation of Israel had been going downhill. They were living in idolatry. Even in the temple, they had brought the idols in. They were worshiping false gods in the temple of Jehovah. And now along comes a young man. His name is Josiah. He is eight years old when he becomes king. But, and he was one, according to verse two, he did what was right in the sight of the Lord and he didn't turn to the right or left. So this was a, a godly young man. So he had some kind of good influence somewhere. And, uh, uh, there were other good kings, obviously David and Hezekiah and Asa and people like that. But he was an oddball. And it says in Second Chronicles, and that's the parallel passage, that by the time he was in uh, ruling for eight years, he had begun to seek the Lord. So by the time he was 16 years old, he was diligently, purposefully seeking the Lord for himself. And then by the time he was 20 years old, he had now been ruling for 12 years, he set out to purge Israel of its idols, its false worship. So here's a young man who is determined to use his position for the Lord. He knew what was true. He lived righteously, and he was going to live it out. And then, by the time he was 26 years old, he was now in office for 18 years, he said, you know what? It is time to do something. And I have the power. He had the power to do this. 
He said, it is time to restore the temple. Here's what happens. It's because when you get away from God and His Word, everything goes downhill. Now, we don't have a temple today we worship in. Our body, according to the New Testament, is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so, if you neglect the truths of the Word of God, you are neglecting your temple. That's just by way of application for us. But here's what happened. The temple had become in dis, uh, had, had been in disrepair and continued that way. They had been taking an offering for a long time in the temple when people came there. And he said, go break open the chest, take the money out, and give it to the carpenters, give it to the masons, give it to those that can do that kind of work. And fact is, they're trustworthy people. Just give it to them. Don't even, don't even give them, don't even, we need no receipts. We need nothing. Just give it to them and tell them to get the work done. And they did actually do that. And so they took the money, they bought the timber, they bought the, the, the uh, masonry things and everything they needed. And they did it and they did it faithfully. And so, as they are doing this, and now we pick it up in 2 Kings chapter 22, verse 8. It says, then, Helkiah, the high priest, said to Shaphan, the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. Here's how ridiculous it had gotten. In the temple itself, and if you look back in Deuteronomy 31, you would have found that God said that because Israel was a stubborn and rebellious people, that they were always to keep a copy of the law right next to the Ark of the Covenant. Because they were stubborn and rebellious. God knew that we're all that way. Rebellious? Don't tell anybody, but all of you are rebellious. I'm, I'm putting my hand up first. You know what? Rebellion isn't, uh, I'm going to go and I'm going to do everything. No, rebellion is, I simply know what to do and I don't do it. That's all rebellion is. It's like the same as foolish. You know, I know what the truth is, but I don't put it into practice in my life. And stubborn? <laughs> I've probably got a corner on the market, just in case anybody wants to know. But anyway... Why do we need the Word of God? We're like Israel. We're stubborn and rebellious. And they were supposed to have the Word there. So here they are uh, doing things in the temple they should have never been doing. They had false idols and all kinds of stuff in there. And the, the very center that was needed by a stubborn and rebellious people was gone. Nobody knew where it was. Now, we don't know where they found it. It doesn't say. They're renovating the temple and they find a copy of the law. We don't know if it was, was it all the first five books of the New Testament or it was a partial of it. We simply don't know that. It just says the book of the law. We know because of the reaction that at least part of it was obedience brings blessing, disobedience brings a curse from the book of Deuteronomy. We know that part was in there because when the king reads it, he knows exactly what is happening and what is going to happen. So we know that part of it was in there. So, anyway, they find the book, um, the high priest finds it. Notice, this guy is the high priest. He was responsible for the spiritual, war, uh, spiritual welfare of the nation. He hadn't known where it was, but he finds it. We don't know how many years it had been neglected and misplaced. Was it in a closet? Was it in a pile of junk in the 
the corner somewhere? Was it under an idol altar somewhere? We don't know. But when they're cleaning the place out and reworking it, they find the book. He takes the book and he goes to the scribe. First of all, he had to have read some of it at least because he goes to the scribe and he, he tells him that, uh, that, that he found the book. So he knew what was in the book, so he had read it. Then he goes to, to uh, Shaphan, who is the scribe, and he reads it. When he reads it, he brought back word to the king. Hey, we found this, the work is going on, and we found this book. And then he reads this book to the king, Josiah. He reads it to Josiah. The immediate response in verse 11 is this. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. He is in anguish because he, we know what it said. It said, you have been living in idolatry and I'm going to judge you. That's what it says. And, and they know exactly what it means. And immediately in verse 13, he says, Go acquire of the Lord for me and the people of all Judea concerning the words of this book that have been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that burns against us. He said, Wow, we are in big trouble. He was not exaggerating. Because God had said, If you don't do what I say... I will judge you. No ifs, ands, or buts. It wasn't, it wasn't stuttering. And so he, and, and the next part, I, I, it took me a while to figure this out because immediately he sends five people to Hulida, the prophetess who lived on the wrong side of town. And I'm like, so he just read this. He knows what it says. Why is he going there? What he wants to find out is the very practical application of what's going on. And indeed, uh, that's exactly what happened. Because she says in verse 15, Thus saith the Lord. So she is going to say, here's how this works. God is not going to relent. He is going to bring judgment. Because you have been living in idolatry. Think about this. The high priest allowed it to go on. The, the kings in the past had allowed it to go on. In fact, is they had propagated some of this stuff. And uh, it is going to happen. And then, and, and, and it's very clear in verse 17, God's wrath is not going to be quenched. The fire of his judgment is going to continue. But, and here's where the prophetess comes in. But the king, uh, she said, because you have humbled yourself. Because you had a tender heart. Now I want to catch something here. It's one particular person that makes all the difference. Now other people have been affected by this and lots of people will be affected. But the word of God has to be to one person and one person only. Me or you. It's not somebody else. It's not, well, they ought to do this. They never materialize us. It's what do you do with it? The king hears it. He has the right heart attitude. And he humbles himself. And wow, we have really blown it. And she says, because you've torn your clothes, you've been weeping. You are just in anguish because of what has been happening. You won't see the judgment. And that's just a practical application. But God hasn't changed his mind. 
He's still going to bring judgment. And there was just a couple of more kings, and they didn't last very long until Babylon came and took them off into judgment, into captivity. But because you have humbled yourself, because you have reacted in the right way, you have done what is right, you will be gathered to your people to the grave in peace. You won't see it. That's kind of neat to know that uh, when we do change our mind, God absolutely deals with individual people. But it's individual people who have to take the first step. Don't expect your pastor to do it, or your Sunday school teacher, or your youth leader, or your parents, or your kids, or your neighbor, or the church as a whole, or anybody else to take the first step. When you see what God says, do what is needed. Don't wait for somebody else because it's all up to you to get it started. And now, and and I believe I've dedicated my life to this, when I know what is true, I need to look at it for myself. And pastors don't do this while they're sitting in Sunday morning for an hour. We deal with this long before we get there because when something hits us, it's in the office while we're studying, while we're mauling it over, meditating on what we're going to say. It's like... Whoa, I got to deal with that one. I got to deal with that one. And uh, uh, that's what we need to do. But we also want other people to know what the truth is. And so immediately after um, Josiah finds out what is going on, we find that he calls together the, the elders of Judah and in Jerusalem. And they, he called them up to his uh, palace. And he read to them. This is the fourth time this has been read now. The king turns around and he reads it to all the leaders in Israel. He says, here's what you need to hear. But it wasn't only just the leaders. He said, and all the inhabitants need to be a part of this. And the king takes the lead. He is now the one reading. Remember, the first time it was read to him. Now, he's turning around and saying... Whoa, this is important. We need to deal with this. And he takes it, and he's the one reading it to the rest of the people. If you know the truth, it will be a burden to you to make sure those around you also know the truth. Why? Because you love them. You don't want the judgment to come on them. You want them to know truth so they can live correctly, so they can trust Jesus Christ as their Savior, so they can live a holy, righteous, godly, God-glorifying life. You want that. You want the best for them. You do not want them to experience judgment. You want them to experience blessing. And so it's not, oh, I'm up here and I'm going to tell you what to... No, it's, it's from the heart. I want people to know truth so they can do what is right. And so they can experience the blessings of God. And that's exactly what Josiah did. He's still a young man. But he has the foresight to realize that God wants good for all of them. So he reads it. And then the king stood there and he made a covenant before the Lord. And the people stood by him. Don't expect to say, do as I say, but not necessarily what I do. No, both go together. Do as I do. Follow me. That's what Josiah did. That's why he's one of the good kings. Because he didn't put it off on somebody else. And he says, you know, and he said with all his 
his heart and his soul to carry out the, the words of the covenant written in the book. That whole thing is a reminiscent of what Jesus would say later when they ask him, what's the greatest commandment? Hey, to do it with your whole heart, with your whole mind, your whole soul, your whole body, your whole, all your strength. It harkens back to this. And all the people got behind him to do that. What's the end result? If I take a stand and I speak up and people change, there's going to be drastic changes. You know what happens next? They didn't simply renovate the temple. It was in disrepair. Now they're cleaning house because they had altars to false gods in there. They had idols in the temple grounds. And they went in and they cleaned it all out and they burned everything up. All that wrong stuff, they didn't say, hey, let's see if we can sell it to the highest bidder. They burned it up and they, they threw it in the creek. They threw it over the graves of the common people. T- total, utter disregard for those false pagan items of worship. They got rid of it. The same principle is found in the book of Acts when it came to uh, the occult literature that the people were, were had participated in. They burned it. They got rid of it. They took everything and simply got it all out of there and cleaned it up. So now they've renovated the temple and now they've cleaned out the temple and everything changes. And here's where we come to this. In chapter 23, they get back on track. See, it's never just okay to get rid of something that's wrong or sinful. That's a good place to start. But that's never the end result. We need to be back on track. So when you start reading the Bible this year, and you get convicted, it's not only okay just to confess I was doing something wrong. It now has to be positive. Here's what happened, verse 21. Then the king commanded all the people saying, Celebrate the Passover to the Lord your God as it is written in the book of the covenant. Because what they had found out is they hadn't been doing what God asked them to do. The Passover was the celebration when God judged Egypt. When God redeemed His people from slavery. And so they went in the positive way. You can never simply deal with the negative. It's always going to be positive. I'm going to live for the Lord. I'm going to carry it out. And when we come this morning before the Lord's Supper, as you well know, if the men want to gather, as you well know, Christ was celebrating the Passover when He instituted the Lord's Supper. It was a celebration in the past of redemption from slavery. But when we participate in the Lord's Supper, we're celebrating the freedom we have from sin. If you've trusted Christ, you have something to proclaim. In fact, it is in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It says, we pro- when we participate in the Lord's Supper, we proclaim His death until He comes. We're proclaiming Christ has been victorious. His death on the cross. It was the death of a lamb at Passover. This is the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ Himself. And we celebrate that. 
And it says that we are to examine ourselves when we do this. And I know I probably sound like a broken record. But if you're here this morning and you've trusted Christ and you're living in fellowship with Him, welcome. If you've trusted Christ and you're living in fellowship with others, welcome. If you know you're in direct disobedience to God and you know that you have an undealt with issue with someone else, please do not participate. Nobody will ask you questions. And I am a privileged pastor because there are people every time we have communion, because sometimes they feel obligated to come and tell me about it. I've never asked them. They'll come and say, well, I, you probably saw I didn't take communion. No, I really actually didn't see that, but, well, I'm going to tell you why. You know what? I'm a privileged pastor because you believe what the Bible says. If you eat and drink in an unworthy manner, you're eating and drinking judgment to yourself. And Paul went on to say, if you do that, many are weak, some are sick, and some are asleep, which means they've died. Because God takes this seriously. Just like Josiah took the Word of God seriously and said, no, no, we got to do this. Judgment's going to come. I don't want any of you to walk out of here feeling condemned or that I'm being judged. No, I want you to know that there's forgiveness. His death, His blood, His body was given to pay for our sin, all of our sin. If you haven't trusted Christ, right now would be a good time to trust Christ. Not simply so you can take communion but because you've been reminded that something has been done on your behalf. Christ died for you, a sinner. Christ did everything to pay for your sin and made it available as a free gift that you can trust Him and He will forgive you. And if you've already trusted Christ, if you haven't done that, you need to do that. If you've already trusted Christ and you know you're not living in fellowship, you know you're in direct disobedience to God, or you butting heads with somebody else and you've never tried to deal with it, you know what? You need to deal with that. We're going to spend a few moments here in prayer before the men come forward. But if you need to do business with God, this is a good time to do it. Why? He says, examine yourselves. See if there's any lumps in there. You know, like when you sift flour. See if there's any lumps in there. Get the lumps out. Because if you don't, you're eating and drinking judgment unto yourself. That's not what God wants. He wants you to be in the place of blessing. That's what He wants. This is the Lord's Supper. Um, And as the men are coming forward, I just encourage you to bow your heads. Ask God, if there's something in me that needs to be dealt with, show me, show me, show me, and then deal with it. Might be something that you can't deal with in your seat there. You know, you can confess it, but you need to deal with it. Get on the phone as soon as you leave church. Get to that person's house. Go before the Lord on your knees. Deal with it. Because that's what God wants. He didn't do it because He's against us. He's for us. This is the time when we're brought to that realization. Father, thank you for giving us this time to hold our feet to the fire, to show us what a great work you've done and what great love, mercy, and grace you have toward us. We thank you for reminding us on a regular basis by the way of the Lord's Supper that you're a great God 
and you want great things in our lives. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to ask Brother Russ if he would thank the Lord for his body that he gave for us. <coughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you. We stand in remembrance and in thankfulness for the act of sacrifice that you performed these 2,000 years ago. Submitting yourself to the cruelty of the Romans and suffering the consequences of that hate and the damage done to you and your, your living body. We thank you, Lord, for that terrible sacrifice you made, and we are forever grateful yes. for the result, the salvation, the elimination of sin from our debt. <clears throat> that was the consequence of that. Once again, Lord, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat>
The Lord Jesus Christ, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take and eat. Ask Brother Andre if he would thank the Lord for his shed blood. And Father, we thank you for who you are. And Father, we just uh, look at Peter where it says, it's not with perishable things such as silver and gold that we have been ransomed from our worthless lives, Lord, but it is with your precious blood. And so we just thank you, God, for, for pouring that out for us that we may have forgiveness of our sin. And it's in Jesus' name. Amen.
In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, saying, This cup is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Drink from it, all of you. You would please rise as we're dismissed in prayer. Father, we thank you for the privilege of having your word. Lord, I pray we would not neglect that privilege, but that we would put it into practice by using it every day of this next year. I pray that it would have that same kind of effect that it had in the days of Josiah, that we found the book. The book has changed us. And as it changed us, it changed lots of things around us. And Father, it put us back on track. On track to glorify you, to honor you, and to be the representative you want us to be in your name in this world. Thank you so much. And we pray that you would bless the year ahead, and particularly bless the year ahead for those that are willing to be obedient to the truth of the Word of God. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless. Go with God and have a great new year.